Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea? We come to our final study in the book, uh, this uh, great book. Uh, It's been a bit uh, difficult at times, uh, but nevertheless, uh, there is much that we can learn as we study this book together. Remember, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. That's the major prophets. And then in your Bible, you have the first of the minor prophets, which uh, is Hosea. We're turning then to Hosea chapter 14, the very last chapter of this book. Is, is so, Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride in horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Amen. We know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. Do you like happy endings? I like happy endings if it's a whodunit. I like to see the murderer caught. If it's a thriller, I like to see the hero escape. If it's a fairy tale, I like to hear that the slipper fits. And supremely, if it's a romance, I like to see the couple reunited. Uh, There may be misunderstandings, jealousy, even infidelity, but if that last page doesn't conclude with the thought, if not the actual words, and they all lived happily ever after, I feel a little bit dissatisfied. I hate books and movies that leave you hanging that have no resolution. Call me a sentimentalist if you must, but tragic love stories are all always the worst. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there is something in us all that really wants Virgil's tagline to be true, love conquers all. Now, if you have been following these studies in the prophecy of Hosea, you will know that it is a love story, a love story not just between Hosea and his philandering wife, Gomer, but a love story that's based on God's relationship with Israel. Like Gomer, Israel had been unfaithful to God She had prostituted herself to the foreign pagan god, fertility god, Baal. But as we come to the last chapter, we discover to our relief and to our immense satisfaction that this love story has a happy ending, that God is ultimately reconciled to his bride. 
Now, if you were with us last week, you might be forgiven to think, uh, for, for thinking that uh, happy ending would never come because Hosea portrayed the anger and, uh, uh, and wrath of God with a passion that, and an intensity that is unrivaled in any other place in Scripture. He spoke of judgment, his judgment on Israel, her exile from the promised land, the destruction of her cities, the plunder of her riches, the massacre of her children. And in verse 14 of chapter 13, God himself says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. I will have no compassion, says the NIV. There seems little room for a happy ending there. And yet this last chapter, chapter 14, would have us know that there is a happy ending after all. After all that destruction and devastation, there's room for a happy ending. And love does, as Virgil says, conquer all. So come with me this morning and learn of the happiest of all happy endings of any love story ever told when God is reconciled to his sinful people. I want you to notice four things from this short chapter of only uh, nine verses concerning God's reconciliation with his people. First of all, the invitation extended. Look at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. That's it. That's the glorious invitation God extended to his people. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Just five centuries before, Moses had stood on Mount Sinai and heard the Creator of heaven and earth say to a band of Hebrew uh, poverty-stricken peasants uh, who had just left Egypt, I am Yahweh, your God. That possessive pronoun, your, distinguished that riffraff from all the other nations of the earth. The great king of the universe had chosen to relate to these people personally and to weave his divine presence and purpose into their insignificant little history. He belonged to them in a way that he didn't belong to any other nation on the face of the earth. It was utterly staggering. I am Yahweh, your God. This bunch of poverty-stricken ex-slaves became children of the living God. However, half a millennium later, something had happened. Something had gone desperately wrong. Something had interrupted uh, God's relationship with these people. And so Hosea pleads, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. He is still your God. You are still his people, but you have gone from him. You have left him. You have abandoned him. Like some philandering wife, you have abandoned your legitimate husband and your God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. This nation that had been so singularly blessed by God turned out to be nothing more than a bunch of ungrateful, unfaithful, mutineering rebels. A nation that rejected the covenant relationship God had so graciously forged with him. A nation that had trampled on his laws and spurned his love. A nation that had rejected his rule and uh, stood him to the face 
a, a nation that was riddled with spiritual infidelity and spiritual adultery. Return, says Hosea, to the Lord your God, to the one who has chosen you, to the one who has called you, to the one who redeemed you from Egypt. Return, he says, to the Lord your God. You see, Israel had drifted from God. She was spiritually backslidden. That's how the authorized version translates verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will heal their backsliding. They had contracted that dreadful spiritual disease of waywardness, of apostasy, of backsliding. And only a divine intervention by the great physician could restore them to spiritual health. But the amazing thing is that their God, their heavenly husband, was still open to receive them back. And he invites them to return to the Lord their God. Many husbands would find it impossible or at least difficult to forgive the unfaithfulness uh, of an adulterous wife. Not so with God. In spite of Israel's persistent infidelity, he invites them to return to him. Yes, they had spurned his love. Yes, they had spat in his face. Yes, they had betrayed his trust. But even still, the invitation is extended. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. I will heal your backsliding. I wonder, is there anyone here this morning that needs to hear that gracious invitation? Return to the Lord your God. Like Israel, God has chosen you. He has called you. He has redeemed you and saved you. Like Israel, He is your God. Unlike so many, you know what it is to have personal dealings with God, to have a relationship with God, to walk with God. But like Israel, you have played fast and loose with His affections. You've been unfaithful to Him. You know what it is to walk the streets of spiritual prostitution and to engage in spiritual infidelity. And just as God was willing to forgive Israel, He is willing to forgive you. And He calls on you this morning, return to the Lord your God. Remember who He is. Remember how He has blessed you. Do you not want to know that blessing again? Well, if you want to know that blessing again, you must return to the Lord your God. Isn't it amazing, utterly amazing, that in spite of the way Israel had treated him, God still wants her to return? Is that not a comfort? Isn't that not a challenge? You've been wayward and unfaithful, and yet he still invites you to return to the Lord your God. The invitation extended. Secondly, notice this morning, the conditions established. Hosea goes on in this final prophecy and spells out exactly how we are to return uh, to God. If we're going to be restored to a position of spiritual intimacy with God, there are certain conditions we must meet. Just look at the second half of verse 1 through to 3. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. 
Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all my iniquity except what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. So Hosea tells us, uh, if we are to return to God, that we first of all must face up to the problem of sin. The second half of verse 1, For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The authorized version says, Thou hast fallen by thy iniquity. And that word stumbled or downfall, as the NIV has it, uh, is a clue to when this chapter was actually preached by the prophet Hosea. Because he uses the past tense. Your sins have been your downfall. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Remember right through this prophecy, uh, Hosea has been threatening God's judgment in the invasion of the Assyrians who would devastate uh, the people of God, that they would plunder their cities, they would uh, massacre their children, and they would carry the inhabitants uh, into captivity. And it seems now that that has happened, that this has taken place. Because your sins have been your downfall. God's judgment had fallen upon them. And Hosea is calling upon the people of God to recognize that fact. To face up to the problem of sin. To know that it was their sin that led them, uh, landed them in this predicament. And led them uh, 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 into a place of judgment. And always in the first step. That's the first step in returning to God. It's facing up to the problem of sin. It's, it's admitting and identifying uh, your, your sin before God. It's, it's admitting that the reason that you have strayed from God and you're in this weakened position with God and this uh, sterile relationship with God is because of your own sin. It's your own fault. Your, your sins have been your downfall. And that, of course, can be a very difficult thing to do, to face up to the problem of sin and to admit that, uh, that it, uh, your sin is the, the root cause of all the difficulty and all the trouble. And we make excuses, don't we? And it's as old as the Garden of Eden itself. When, when Adam sinned, well, he not only blamed Eve, he blamed God. He said, the woman that you gave me, the, the reason I've sinned and the reason I've fallen from from grace is because of the, uh, the, your purpose in planning and giving me this woman. And then Eve, she blames the serpent. And the serpent, of course, hadn't a leg to stand on. So, so that's the first step then in, in, in returning to God. You must face up to the problem of sin. You must admit that it's your sins, your iniquities that have been your downfall. Are you prepared for that? If you heed this invitation, return to the Lord your God, you first of all must acknowledge the problem of sin. Secondly, you must confess that sin. Look at verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our, our lips. God wants to hear words of confession. Israel is to take words with her. She was to plead for the forgiveness of God. 
That's an interesting expression at the end of verse 2. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. The NIV says that we will offer the fruit of our lips. The authorized version says we will render the calves of our lips. Literally, the Hebrew says that we may offer the bullocks of our lips. You see, Israel was a nation with institutionalized sacrifice. And even at the height of her apostasy, the sacrificial shrines were booming. Israel was still offering sacrifices, but those sacrifices meant nothing. They weren't They were meant as an atonement for sin, a confession of sin, but they were empty sacrifices because the people were still carrying on in their uh, their immoral practices. And uh, God comes and he says, "I I, I want sacrifices of the lips. I want the bulls and the calves of your lips. I want to hear words. I want to hear penitential Uh, uh, words and I want to see penitential tears. It's out of the, the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks and I want to see heartfelt confession. God will forgive us without ceremony. God will forgive us without good works. God will forgive us without a payment. God will forgive us without religious activity, but he will not forgive us without confession. Proverbs 28, verse 13, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses his sin and forsakes it finds mercy. John 1 and verse 9, a verse that every Christian ought to have committed to memory. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that confession True, heartfelt confession is absolutely essential for forgiveness and returning to God and restoring our relationship with God. And like the Israelites, we prefer religious ceremony to confession, to stand uh, in church for an hour or sit in church for an hour rather than to examine our hearts and pour out our waywardness to God in prayer. But if we are to be reconciled to God, we not only need to face up to the problem of sin, we need to confess that sin to him. So if you're going to return to God this morning, you need to acknowledge your sin. You need to confess your sin. Then you need to repent of your sin. Look at verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We shall not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. You see, the, the two principal sins that Israel, that Israel were guilty of were her lack of trust in God on one hand and her turning to false idols on the other. When threatened, she trusted in her own political ingenuity to save herself. When Egypt threatened, she turned to Assyria. When Assyria threatened, she turned to Egypt. And that's what verse 3 is about. Assyria shall not save us. This is what they're to confess, that their security is not to be found in Assyria. We will not ride on horses. Egypt was the principal supplier of war horses in the ancient world. But we're not going to look to Assyria. We're not going to look to Egypt. We're going to trust in our God. 
We're going to rely on Him. We're going to turn to Him. He's our hope. He's our rescue. He's the only one that can save us and restore us. So there was this lack of trust in God in in Israel. But the other great sin was the sin of idolatry. And you see that again uh, in verse 3. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. Israel had become infatuated with idolatry, with the fertility god Baal. And her craftsmen made idols as representations of that god. And in fact made idols as representations of Yahweh himself. Can you imagine it? They exchanged the worship of the high and holy, invisible, sovereign God for idols that they had made with their own hands. It was incredulous. It was incongruous. And what Hosea is saying in verse 3 is that you must repent of those specific sins that, that led you from God, your lack of trust in God, and your uh, uh, infatuation with the idols that you made, the works of your own hands. You need to confess those sins to God. Now, I suppose some of us might be guilty of a a lack of trust in God as a a specific sin. And remember what Calvin said in our, our last study, that our The human heart is an idol factory that God has a throne in our heart. And if he doesn't reign from that throne, we'll replace it with some other idol because it's in the very nature of man to make idols for himself. But but leaving those specific sins aside, I, I think what Hosea is saying is that you need to identify those sins that led you from God and caused you to stray from his ways and led you into this state of spiritual compromise. You need to identify them and confess them. And what sins then have led you from God? What sins have taken you from God? Infatuation with the world? Materialism that you've made an an idol out of mammon and money? Pornography? An unholy relationship, sexual promiscuity. What is it? What is it that has led you from God and led you into this state of spiritual compromise? Hosea says that you need to identify it and you need to confess it. You need to deal, you need to deal with sin. You need to face up to the problem of sin and repent of that sin. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from. You turn from sin in order to turn to God. So if you're going to return to God, you must face up to your sin. You must confess your sin. You must repent of your sin. And then you must believe in the willingness of God to forgive that sin. Look at um, the very last line of verse 3. In you, the orphan finds mercy. In you, the orphan finds mercy. That's a very strange reference in this context, isn't it? In you, the orphan finds mercy. Now, it could be a reference to the destruction of Israel that they had been orphaned, that God had uh, cast them off, that the temple has been removed, that the Uh, they have been removed from the land and they're like 
orphans uh, in a foreign land. That might be the reference, but I think it's deeper than that. Uh, Because in the Old Testament, God makes special provision for the fatherless and for the orphan. Psalm 10, verse 14. God is the helper of the fatherless. That, That the tenderness and compassion of God is actually revealed in the Old Testament in that he's interested in the orphan. He's interested in the fatherless. That he's a, a God of great mercy, a great God of great kindness, a God of great love. That he's interested in the fatherless. In you, the orphan finds mercy. And, and I think what, what Hosea is saying is, look, you need to remember the very nature of God and the character of God is to be merciful. That's in his DNA. That's who he is. Micah tells us he's a God who delights in mercy. He's a God who in his very nature is merciful and kind and and loving. And perhaps you're here this morning and you know that you've wandered from God. You know that you've compromised your faith and you're saying to yourself, I've gone too far. I've strayed too much. I've I've fallen too deeply. God will never forgive me. God will never receive me. God will never cleanse me. And Hosea says, listen, listen, he's, he's the God who cares for the orphan, for the fatherless. He's a, he's a God of exceeding abundant mercy. He's kind. You get that in, in, in David, don't you? Um, Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my iniquities. That he is loving, that he is compassionate. That's who he is and how that psalm wonderfully ends with the words, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's David, guilty of of murder, guilty of deception, guilty of murder by proxy, but he is confident that God will receive him, that God will take him back because he's a, a God who in his very nature is kind and loving. Isn't that wonderful? Never say, never say, never persuade yourself. It's a lie of the devil. Never persuade yourself that God will not take you back. I don't care how far you've gone, how how dark your past has been, God will receive those who come to him. You must believe in God's willingness to receive you. That's how you become a Christian, isn't it? You must face up to the problem of sin. You need to admit that the Bible's diagnosis of you is actually true. You must confess that sin. You must repent of that sin. And you must put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the grounds of your forgiveness before God. Well, it's exactly the same for returning sinners. They must face up to the problem of sin. They must confess that sin. They must repent of that sin. And they must believe in the um, willingness of God to receive them. Sinners, Jesus will receive. How wonderful that is. The invitation extended. The conditions established. You must face up to your sin. You must confess 
that sin. You must repent of that sin. You must believe in the willingness of God to forgive that sin. Then thirdly, the reception expected. In the second half of this chapter, from verses 4 to 9, Hosea describes the blessings that will be given to returning Israel um, to a truly repentant people. If the first half of the chapter could be summarized by the words of James 1 uh, or 4 and verse 8, draw near to God, then the second half uh, of the chapter could be summarized with the words of that same verse, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How then does Hosea tell us that God will receive back his repentant people? Well, first of all, he promises he will receive them immediately. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. Their spiritual infidelity is described as some terrible kind of disease. It may be that Hosea has in mind venereal disease, perhaps that Gomer had picked up in her uh, days of sexual promiscuity. But uh, Hosea then has taken her back into his house and he has nursed her to health from that uh, terrible, those terrible diseases in days before antibiotics. What kind of magnanimous generosity there is in God that he receives back sin-ridden believers, repentant backsliders. He heals their disease and he loves them freely. He doesn't allow the their sordid past to be a barrier to his love. He loves them freely and unconditionally. And it's marvelous when you face up to the problem of sin, when you confess that sin, when you repent of that sin, when you believe in God's willingness to forgive that sin, in an instant, in a, in a moment, he, he receives you back and he loves you freely. In a human relationship, it might take years for a husband to trust an unfaithful wife and he would have to spend time building trust again to work on his love, but not with God. He loves freely. Here's the reason, verse 4, for my anger has turned from them. This is a marvelous statement for any backslider. Unlike a husband who has been betrayed, he holds no judges, uh, no, no grudges. Uh, he, there's no smoldering resentment in the heart of God. There's no brooding jealousy. As soon as the sinner returns, the anger is removed. Love is restored and intimacy is enjoyed. So if you have or the devil has convinced you that God will never receive you back. That's just not true. It's just not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Hosea would have us know that he will heal us completely and that he will uh, love us freely, that he will uh, forgive us absolutely, for my anger has turned away from them. That never holds grudges uh, when we return to him. He restores us immediately. Secondly, he will bless us abundantly in verses 5 to 8. What we have in verses 5 to 8 is a love poem that many commentators uh, say is very reminiscent of the Song of Solomon, which the bride's beauty is described in terms of nature's fruitfulness. Uh, I will, uh, verse 5, I will be like the Jew of Israel. He shall blossom 
like the lily. It's a picture of beauty. He shall take root like the street trees of Lebanon, picture of stability. His shoot shall spread out. His uh, beauty shall be like the olive. Uh, olive oil in the ancient world was equivalent to oil in the modern world. It was a, 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 um, a means of great financial security and prosperity. So there's, there's beauty, there's stability, there's prosperity. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty will be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Another reference, I think, to beauty. They shall dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Like God's going to restore them to a place of influence. There's testimony, beauty, stability, prosperity, and testimony. And Hosea would want us to understand that this uh, spiritual fruitfulness is from, from God, that it comes from him. God says in verse 5, I will be like the Jew of heaven. For this, this fruitfulness, what, what do you need? You need water. And God says, I'll be the source of all that uh, fruitfulness and that prosperity. I will bless you abundantly. Look at verse 8. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. How, how bold of Hosea to use something that had been hijacked by the worship of Baal uh, as a fertility symbol, a tree, and to employ it about God. It's a bit like the LGBTI community taking the rainbow, stealing our rainbow that reminds us of the covenant faithfulness of God. And Hosea refuses to surrender that symbol. He says, I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Do you see what he's saying? He's looking forward to a day when God will bless his people abundantly. Now we know that northern Israel, the ten tribes went into captivity. They were wiped from the political map. But he's looking forward to a day when, when the Messiah would come, when he would restore these people, when he would come and through his death turn, verse 4, anger from them. That he would swallow up the wrath of God upon Calvary's cross and that all who then come to believe in him, he will lavish fruitfulness and blessing and beauty upon them. That's, that's the picture. He's looking forward to the coming of Christ. He's looking forward to the coming of, of the Messiah. And you think then of how we are blessed in Christ and blessed in the gospel. We are children of the living God. We can come into the presence of the great God of the universe and dare to call him our father. He's adopted us into his family. He's forgiven us our sin. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. He's promised us a home in heaven. He has reconciled us to God. He has chosen us to be his people. He has lavished blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon our heads. And, and just as he promised, there is, there is beauty and there is stability and there is prosperity and there is testimony that the fame of these believing people go out, goes out into all the world. That's what he's looking forward to. 
God had written these people off. That he promises uh, that in Christ and in the gospel there's a way for them to return to the living God and restore their relationship with him. What, what a glorious thing the gospel is. And here we're sitting in Balamina. Nobody from the ten lost tribes. Nobody from the tribes that remain faithful to the house of David. Uh, a group of Gentile rabble. And yet we have been reconciled to our God. And we have been blessed, blessed like no other people on the face of the earth. And those who have wandered from God, those who have betrayed their relationship with God, those who have carried on those illicit love affairs with the world in, in spite of the blessings that they have received, he says, come to me. Come and return to me, and I will once more, I will once more bless you abundantly. How positively this, this little prophecy ends. And then, in, in, finally, we have the warning extended, this little postscript that appears uh, in verse 9. Whoever is wise, it's not addressed to the people of Israel. Do you notice that? It's addressed to the wise men. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Here's, here's the wise um, counsel that is given at the end of the book. For everybody who reads the book of Hosea, what's, what's, what's the, the big lesson? What's the primary lesson? That God's ways are always right. And if you walk in his ways, you will be blessed. But if you, do, if you walk in his ways and you're not righteous, you'll stumble and fall. And there, there's nobody as miserable in this world as the backslider. The true, true backslider, the true believer has backslidden. Because, because life's just, just miserable for them. They think they um, want to fraternize and flirt with the world. And at the same time have a relationship with God. But they realize that their relationship with God is sterile and dead and dark. It's, it's the, the righteous. The ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. That ultimately the mark of a true believer is that he walks in the ways of the Lord. So if a sheep falls into a, a ditch that's full of mud and a shuck. It's full of mud and water and dirt. It will struggle to get out of that. A pig falls into it. It loves it. It just wallows it. And the mark of the true believer is then that, that he walks in the ways of the Lord. The pig is content in the muck and the mire. So, so learn from the book of Hosea that the, the way of the backslider is hard to quote Proverbs. That's, that's what Hosea is teaching us. Here were the people living independently from God, throwing off a relationship with God, and they had misery upon misery upon misery. The way of the backslider is hard. But the way of the, the righteous is the way to blessing. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the, way, for the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors fall or stumble in them. 
Amen. Learn that lesson that, that, that if, you, if you wander from God, it's a hard life. It's a hard life. And the road to blessing and to fruitfulness and uh, a flourishing relationship with God is to maintain short accounts, to continually return to him and to uh, keep him close to you. Amen.